Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. You've probably heard of it. Maybe your professors asked you to write a paper on it, or your agency said you had to do it. Maybe you research it. Maybe you teach it. Maybe you love it. Maybe you hate it. Maybe you wish I would define the pronoun it. Okay, fair enough. Today's episode of the Social Work Podcast looks at the dance craze that's sweeping the profession, the evidence-based practice. Okay, it's not really a dance craze. In fact, I... I don't think it's even a dance. But I could see some enterprising social work students creating a flash mob evidence-based practice dance. So if you do, upload it and send me a link and we'll post it on the Social Work Podcast website. But I digress. I wanted to do an episode on evidence-based practice because it's been the subject of a lot of debate in social work. One of the controversies is over how to define evidence-based practice. So I was wondering how listeners of the Social Work Podcast to find it. And last week, I created a poll on the Social Work Podcast website and asked listeners to vote on one of four possible definitions of evidence-based practice. I let people know about the poll through a brief podcast update, a tweet on the Social Work Podcast Twitter feed, and a message on the Facebook fan page. In seven days, 183 people voted. One person said that evidence-based practice was, quote, a waste of time. Seven people, or 3% of respondents, said that evidence-based practice was, quote, when practitioners are mandated to use certain interventions or programs by a funding source, for example, managed care. 58 people, almost a third of respondents, said that evidence-based practice was, quote, using empirically supported treatments, for example, dialectical behavior therapy or multisystemic therapy. And 117 people Nearly two-thirds of respondents said that evidence-based practice was, quote, a process that uses the best available research along with client values and practitioner expertise to answer a variety of practice questions. So, who's right? According to a 2011 article written by today's guest, Danielle Parrish, and her co-author Alan Rubin, evidence-based practice is, quote, the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of current best evidence in making decisions about the care of individual clients, and the integration of best research evidence with clinical expertise and client values. In other words, evidence-based practice is a process that uses the best available research, practitioner expertise, and client values to answer a variety of practice questions. So, why isn't dialectical behavior therapy or one of the agency-mandated programs considered evidence-based practice? Stay tuned and find out. In today's interview... Danielle and I talk about the difference between process of evidence-based practice and evidence-based practices, also known as empirically supported treatments. We talk about why social workers should use evidence-based practice process. Danielle identified some of the limitations of the evidence-based practice process, resources for social workers interested in accessing the evidence base, and ways that social workers could support each other in being evidence-based practitioners. Today's episode does not cover the history of evidence-based practice. 
That was covered by Bruce Thayer in a 2009 episode of Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Oh, and I'm talking to Danielle because she's one of our profession's experts on this subject. Check out her bio. Danielle Parrish is an assistant professor with the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. Dr. Parrish's research broadly focuses on the development and implementation of evidence-based behavioral health interventions for adolescents and adult females. Dr. Parrish was the principal investigator on a large cross-sectional survey which assessed the views and implementation of evidence-based practice among a diverse sample of behavioral health practitioners in Texas. And she validated a short version of the Evidence-Based Practice Process Assessment Scale, which she co-authored with Alan Rubin. She's also developed and evaluated a training model for community practitioners on the evidence-based process. She's published articles and book chapters on the process of evidence-based practice and made numerous invited and peer-reviewed presentations on this model and the integration of evidence-based process in social work education. Today's interview was recorded in Portland at the 2011 Society for Social Work and Research Conference. And now, on to episode 65 of the Social Work Podcast, The Process of Evidence-Based Practice, an interview with Danielle Parrish. Thanks so much for being here and talking with us today about evidence-based practice. And my first question for you is, what is evidence-based practice? Well, that's a really good question, and um, I think that it's a question that's caused a great deal of confusion um, for a variety of uh, practitioners and researchers. Um, I'd like to start out by mentioning that there have been really two definitions floating out there, but that the primary definition of evidence-based practice is the definition that is a process um, in which you integrate the best available research with your own practitioner expertise um, and the uh, client's values, characteristics, and preferences. And as a part of this process, there, it's really been operationally defined in five steps. The first step is to um, pose an answerable practice question. Uh, the second step is to search uh, electronically for the best available um, evidence to answer that question. Uh, the third step is to critically appraise the, the research that you find. The fourth step is to take what you found and integrate it, as I said earlier, with your own pract practice expertise, the context of practice, and the client's values, culture, and preferences. So it's really this process of offering the client the information uh, or involving them in the process of informed consent about what the research is for various options for their particular situation and empowering them to make a choice collaboratively with you as the practitioner. And then finally, the, the fifth step is to evaluate the outcomes of whatever um, practice decision was made to see if it's working. Okay, so it's a, it's a process. That's one of the definitions. It's a process. And you mentioned informed consent. What do you mean by that? Well, it, I, that's really, a, a, you know, the process of empowering the client um, to kind of join with you and in knowing and being very transparent with them about what the choices are and what, what the evidence is for the various choices um, that they can pursue and just really involving them in that process and, and, being, and if there is an evidence, being transparent about that too. Okay, so that was one definition. What was the other definition? 
Well, I think the other definition that, that's, that's really kind of been out there is uh, and primarily probably among practitioners. When I have done trainings with practitioners in the past on the evidence-based practice process, they're surprised by this definition because what they're hearing more often in their practice is that evidence-based practice is doing an intervention that's on an approved list of, uh, you know, uh, treatments or programs that have a certain amount of evidence or that will be, that are reimbursable. And um, the problem with that, I mean, I, I don't think that those are necessarily bad um, approaches, but I right. think... Hopefully that, they're good approaches yeah, because they, they be. have they have an evidence base. So, so, so like an example might be uh, dialectical behavior therapy. Right. It right? has or, quite a wide, yeah, base of support. But I, I think that what we're missing when we, when we take something off a list and we apply it to everybody is that we're not... Um, taking into consideration the variation in how, how clients present and what might be uh, culturally uh, appropriate for them or, or acceptable. And so I think that the process allows us um, a little bit more ability to kind of take those contextual issues into account, and, um, but also still consider the research evidence. So the process of evidence-based practice would allow you to um, see a client, figure out what they need, figure out what you're comfortable doing, figure out what the research says is best to do in this situation if there is research on whatever your client's coming in with. And that's different from evidence-based practices. Right, or, or, or as some people would say empirically supported interventions. That's, I guess, one way to differentiate in, in keep it less confusing is that we have the evidence-based practice process and then we have empirically supported interventions okay so that'll be good so so from now on anybody who's listening to this <laughs> will say empirically supported interventions or treatments rather than evidence-based practice for those off-the-shelf manual kinds of approaches is that we're, we're making a paradigm shift here so. i think that'd be wonderful okay. i think it'd be less confusing <laughs> But I don't know if it's going to happen. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll do this. Will be like our single system design. <laughs> right. Like, is there a change after this podcast? Right. right. This is the we'll AB. Evaluate this right. There you go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what are some of the assumptions behind advocating for social workers taking an evidence-based approach to service delivery? That's a great question. I think I think the primary assumption to this approach is that um, research is an important part of, of decision making and practice, and that, however, I think the EBP process approach says it isn't the only important aspect of making practice decisions. So it's it's kind of um, it, so. I think that's how it differs from practice is that largely we've relied on authority or tradition um, or our supervisors to kind of direct us in the right um, path for, for our different practice decisions that we're making. And um, the process really says, let's integrate one more thing into this decision-making process. Let's consider the research in a systematic way. Um, and... I suppose that the assumption, the reason we have this assumption is because we know um, from the past that we, there are things that have made sense theoretically that should work, but, but really haven't and, and have been harmful. Uh, so what's an example? 
So one example is a critical incident stress debriefing, um, which is an approach that's typically used after a major disaster or traumatic event where you you kind of involve or get get a group of people together and like like first responders, right? Or like first yeah. responders, and and basically what we found through research over time, it made sense at first to kind of just address it and and you know make people feel safe and process the event. However, what we found over time is that it it actually results in in an increase in the number of people that develop PTSD. Um, that's one example. The DARE program, which we've sunk a lot of money into over the the last several years, I guess what decades, decades at this point, yes. <laughs> and um, which which wasn't effective, and we knew for a long time that that was the case. The Scared Straight program. Uh, and, 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 you know, part of the problem is that we could be harming individuals, and, and, and the other issue is that we could be wasting resources. So what you're saying is that it's, it's, it's not enough just to use practice wisdom. You also want to integrate the research, but you want to critically appraise the research mm-hmm. to make sure that whatever you're using actually works. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, something could, could make sense theoretically or based on common sense, but, but when you test it out, we could learn something that we didn't know or that we may not be readily apparent. And it also helps us to know what's best. Something might be a lot more brief, um, you know, and a lot, less, a lot more cost-efficient than, than alternatives. So um, I think that you know, relying on the research to, to, to answer those types of questions is very valuable. So what are some of the limitations of evidence-based practice? So what do you mean specifically? Well, I guess I'm thinking, and if, uh, you know, if I were a practitioner, I would absolutely want to do the best for my clients. But if I'm taking into consideration what my clients need and what I know how to do, like my practice wisdom, which is what I've been doing, but now I have to include the research, that means I have to have access Mm -hmm. to the research. And let's say I actually do have access to the research, which I'm not sure how I would get access to, reading it is a nightmare. Like it's all statistics and and like methods and, you know, and, and it's not written for me as a practitioner. And so I want to do it, but I don't know how to take something from this research article and then put it into my practice. Mm-hmm. That, that's sort of what I mean by like a limitation. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, definitely a challenge in, in implementing the process. I think there are a few things that can be done. Um, the first is that there are a lot of um, resources available online. So if we start with the, the first point that you made about access to information, things are sprouting up like crazy. There are so many different resources out there. The first thing that practitioners usually don't realize is that they have access to their local libraries, the public library. It, it, typically, if you have a membership, most libraries these days have electronic access that you can get anywhere where you have internet access, home, work, and you can search databases that are very similar to a lot of the uh, public libraries, or uh, university libraries, I should say. And, and that doesn't solve the, the concern about reading research, um, but I do think that there are some ways to make that process easier and, and perhaps more um, practitioner-friendly. I think typically if, if you can shoot for trying to find a systematic review first, basically what the systematic review does is it, it synthesizes a large amount of literature in a particular practice area in one article instead of 
a lot of articles. <laughs> so, so it does the work for you. Basically, yeah. And um, we have some great um, organizations on the web, such as the Campbell uh, Collaboration and the Cochrane Collaboration, that actually put these online, the summaries at least. I, I know Campbell puts the whole review, but if, as a practitioner, if you read the summary, um, they typically do give you implications for practice um, from the overall uh, review. And so that can be really helpful in terms of knowing what the findings mean. Campbell typically focuses on um, areas that are very relevant to social work, social welfare, criminal justice, uh, as some examples. And the uh, Cochrane collaboration typically focuses more on medicine, but there are a lot of resources in the area of mental health. So um, those are both great resources. Um, you can pretty much Google the two names that I've given, and they'll come up. Um, but And there are a lot of other resources out there as well that kind of summarize the literature in er- different areas, and I'm happy to provide a list um, of those resources um, if you'd like to post them on your site. Yeah, no, we, that would be great. We'll post that on the Social Work Podcast website. That would be great. And we'll post the links to the uh, Cochrane and the Campbell uh, uh, websites. Okay, so those are those are places that clinicians can go to get summaries of the research, and and they can also go to their library. It sounds like to access mm-hmm. journals and books and that sort of stuff. Right, right. And, and the other the other thing that um, some practitioners have found helpful is is to kind of get into teams. Um, so if within an agency, if they're um, were some individuals that were interested in various steps of the EBP process, you know, kind of like a work team that could get together and identify practice questions and kind of divvy up the various steps of the process and um, generate knowledge for their particular agency and share it. Um, That's one way to kind of make the process more feasible. Um, And if uh, practitioners are in private practice, they can kind of maybe get together and form a journal club or, or some sort of an evidence-based practice process club where they um, come together and identify similar uh, questions that they have and, and take a team approach to answering those questions. Let's say I am working in an agency and I am working with kids with co-occurring disorders and I remember from my MSW program that there's not much research out there on these kids. Um, and let's say I am even able to do a review and I don't find any research. Mm-hmm. Like, am I not able to do evidence-based practice at that point? That, that's a great question. I, I, would, I would argue that if you have gone through the process to look for the evidence and it's not there, that you're still engaging in the evidence-based practice process because you've looked for the research. Um, and that particular case, it might be, you know, uh, a situation where you take the research that most applies or, and, and you integrate that with your practice expertise or the expertise of, of your fellow practitioners and, and, and try to find the best course of action. And then, of course, it becomes even more important to evaluate your practice. Like if you're working with uh, Latino youth and the only research out there is with white or African-American kids, like right. you'd want to evaluate it to see if there are any cultural differences or something like that. Absolutely. So are students learning evidence-based practice or the process of evidence-based practice in schools of social work? I think they are learning it more than in the past. Alan Rubin and I did a survey, uh, I would say about five years ago, of MSW 
faculty in the U.S. It, it was interesting because at that point in time, we found out that uh, even faculty were very divided in how they defined evidence-based practice. As I was mentioning earlier, there, there's those two definitions. So some people saw it as a process. Some people saw it more as a kind of uh, a list of em- empirically supported interventions. So, um, and we also found that there were a lot of there was a lot of variation in how faculty um, viewed what kind of evidence was necessary for deeming something as being empirically supported or evidence based. And so, that led to the Austin Initiative. It was hosted by UT Austin um, and kind of organized by Ellen Rubin, and um, it, it resulted in a uh, ga- the gathering of hundreds of faculty across the United States and, and really started a discussion, I think, about um, what evidence-based practice is, how we define it in social work, and um, kind of how we can start teaching and educating uh, students about uh, the evidence-based practice process. And so since that time, I I keep hearing about various developments at different schools. There's actually a collection of uh, syllabi on the CSWE website. There's an evidence-based practice section. There are courses that are being taught specifically on the evidence-based practice process, entire courses, and some of those are on there. There are other syllabi there that kind of integrate the process into other subject matter. Um, and I know that the, the Brown School has adopted the evidence-based practice process as, as the model for their, for their curriculum. Okay, so it sounds like students are learning this. There's uh, the process of evidence-based practice and that there are empirically supported treatments. Um, there are a lot of resources for social workers. There are things that social workers can do in their agencies or in private practice to uh, support each other. Did I get that? Yeah, I think you summed it up really well, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. Okay. Well, Danielle, thanks so much for being here today and talking with us about evidence-based practice. Thank thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast.